Welcome to this month's special programming series, Focus on Cancer, on ReachMD XM157. If we can put people on the moon, people in Iraq, and people in Afghanistan, why will we never cure people with cancer? You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is Dr. Peter Bach. Dr. Bach is an associate attending physician at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. He is a member of the Health Outcomes Research Group and from 2005 to 2006 served as a senior advisor to the administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, where he oversaw the agency's cancer initiatives, evidence development work, and data policy. He is a member of the Institute of Medicine's National Cancer Policy Forum. Hi, Dr. Bach. Thanks for joining us at the Clinician's Roundtable. It's a pleasure to be here. Peter, you wrote an op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal entitled, Why We'll Never Cure Cancer. That's rather pessimistic. So, I mean, how can you say that? I mean, you're kidding, aren't you? I'm kidding and I'm not kidding. I mean, I really obviously hope, just like all physicians and healthcare professionals hope, that we'll make huge strides in cancer, and we've made quite a few. But, you know, it's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a writer's trick to indulge people or to drag them into an interest in reading the article. And the, the emphasis of the article is that for each step we make in scientific progress, for each new mechanism of disease we uncover, for each new drug we develop, for each incremental improvement in radiotherapy or surgical techniques, the translation of that information into the population at large and into the you know, vast groups of cancer patients newly diagnosed each year is very, very poor. There's huge signal loss, there's very inefficient system, there's very inadequate sort of dissemination of innovation in a way that would get anywhere close to the bang for our buck that we would expect. Let me ask you this question. We spoke with Ann Albright from the CDC, who's director of diabetes translational research. Is there something going on similar to that in cancer translation, to bring it from the bench to the public? Yeah, so, you know, translation can have different meanings to different people. Most people think of translation as going from the test tube to the drug or from the test tube to the patient. But what I'm talking about really is, is the next step. Once you know a drug works or an intervention works, that the healthcare system, if you will, make sure that it's delivered appropriately to the right patients and the right doses and the right intervals, the toxicities are monitored appropriately, and the rest of it. I don't know much about the diabetes initiative, but there's no question that in cancer there's quite a few entities, including the NCI, the National Comprehensive Cancer Networks, uh, the Cancer Quality Alliance, a number of groups working on trying to ensure that the quality of cancer care approximates the quality that is needed to yield the benefits we should get from science. But, you know, in the op-ed, I pointed out that, you know, you can take any of the major cancer killers, you can take any of the major interventions or major breakthroughs we've had in them, and ask the question whether or not the average patient with the disease is likely to get the full benefit of the innovation. And I walk through the dismal data on colon cancer screening. Now, colon cancer screening should reduce mortality, and remember, colon cancer is a number two cancer killer should reduce the mortality rate all by itself by about 50% if it's done correctly, optimally, in the right populations. But today, fewer than half of all patients even get colon cancer screening. And the data suggests that if you take colonoscopy, for an example, that many people performing the colonoscopy are quite poor at finding precancerous polyps, regardless of their size. Is there a difference between the camera versus the direct endoscopy? The tablet or the, you know, the pill you swallow? The pill is really for small bowel examination is my understanding. I don't have deep expertise on that, but that's my understanding. Is it's, it's just for the small bowel. So we're talking about optical colonoscopy. Virtual colonoscopy is obviously the next exciting thing, and the data suggests that it's quite a bit more sensitive 
than optical, or at least matched. And what's nice about it is that the platform for interpreting it is a PAX machine or radiologic machine, so you could have much more robust sort of duplicate checking and things like that, like we have in mammography. But leaving that aside, today the question is, what's the major advance in colon cancer? Well, there's advances in therapeutics, but the major advance is the learning that colon cancer develops in the way it does, meaning it can be found through screening, mostly colonoscopy, removed. Natural history can be altered, and half of the deaths can be averted. But today, people don't get them, and when they do get them, they, many of the people performing the colonoscopies are you know, not optimally skilled. And so that's what I meant, if you will, by why we'll never cure cancer. But how are we going to get them optimally skilled? That's a real policy challenge. And there are a number of potential solutions. If you look in mammography, we have the Mammography Quality Standards Act. We have the American College of Radiology certifying facilities. We have standards for the number of mammograms radiologists have to read to be certified to read them. We have checking and recertification and duplicate testing or validity and interrater reliability assessments. And I think the evidence suggests, although we're not perfect in mammography, we've gotten much better at ensuring that both the machine used to do the mammogram and the person charged with reading it are performing near where at the level they should be. We don't have that in colon cancer screening. It may be hard to achieve. These aren't easy things, but you know, the, the thrust of the article was to say, you know, we can't just invest in research if we want to save lives. We have to invest in or pay attention to the fact that that research doesn't get to patients in the way it should. You know, I went all the way on the other end of the spectrum in the op-ed pointing out that Herceptin, you know, and that's a targeted therapy, a huge breakthrough on the sort of biologics. It's really the sort of big science thing we've all been waiting for in cancer. You know, a drug that doubles the disease-free survival in metastatic breast cancer and has an even larger prolongation, life prolongation effect in the adjuvant setting in women who are HER2 positive. If you actually look, there's women getting Herceptin whose HER2 tests have been misinterpreted. I'd like to go into that in a little bit of more detail on how that's happening, but just pause for a moment to welcome those who are just joining us. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and with me today is Dr. Peter Bach from the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. We're discussing why we'll never cure cancer. Yeah, please go ahead, because the targeted therapy is really so exciting. In fact, I was going to ask you about that subsequently about lung cancer and if there's anything coming down the pipe in that direction. But go right ahead with the Herceptin and the breast cancer. Well, again, you know, remember the theme here is that for each scientific breakthrough we have, we elaborate that progress in a delivery system that does it poorly. There's a lot of signal loss. There's lives being lost, if you will, because we don't know how to apply these breakthroughs in an optimal way. And the HER2 example is a pretty good one in that you know, last year's ASCO, they reported on a multicenter study, and remember, this is a cooperative group study where they're probably using labs that are better than the average, you know, and they're probably high-throughput places, and still about 10% of the women in the study they reported on had been reported back incorrectly as being HER2 positive and were getting Herceptin, even though they shouldn't have been. And, you know, there was a study reported sort of in tandem suggesting that the HER2 test isn't adequate for finding about 20% of people who probably would benefit from the drug because it's a f sort of false negative, if you will. Again, so the theme is, you know, here's this huge breakthrough. The data, the FDA label, the evidence is very strong that there's a benefit, and the delivery system is leading to some women getting it who shouldn't and some women who shouldn't get it uh, getting it. And, you know, I think in general as we move towards personalized medicine or targeted therapies, we're going to increasingly depend on our ability of the system to robustly run these tests the way the system's currently structured, there's no guarantee that'll happen. And as the complexity rises, you would expect there to be more defects in testing. 
Well, you've had experience at the federal level, and here we are in this election year, and everybody's the candidate of change. What's Peter Bach going to tell them to change? How are we going to move to the next level? You know, I do think that quality standards are increasingly important, and I do see there's a very strong trend towards quality assessment and quality measurement being driven by a number of organizations. And I do see physicians and laboratories and pharmacies and hospitals all sort of getting on the quality movement. And the hard thing is that each thing requires quality improvement. And what I haven't seen is a real sort of systems approach to getting higher quality. You know, you could probably fix the HER2 testing problem by centralizing testing, but that won't necessarily fix the problem for the next test until it's uncovered. So this is a very vexing problem. But I'd argue that the current healthcare system isn't really a system at all. It's a bunch of unaffiliated small businesses, if you will, all in the practice of medicine. And in order to get global improvement in quality, we need a system that has as a focus quality and sort of robust dissemination of both technique and insight. Along with the colonoscopy, analogous to that, you spoke about prostate cancer, early detection, depending on who the surgeon was that operated on you and whether you saw a, an oncologist, a radiation oncologist, or a surgeon, you got different care. Do you see any answers there? Uh, where could the primary care doctor turn perhaps to get some information from the Medicare database from what you've done as an epidemiologist so that they can better direct their patient appropriately? That's an excellent question. And right now the data doesn't guide us the way it should. And I'm a critic more than a solution than a person who offers solutions, I guess, on this, at least during this half hour. But the challenge here is that there are hundreds of thousands of men facing the same decision, really, over and over again every year. We have very little idea how to handle early-stage prostate cancer. There's a lot of disagreement about who deserves watchful waiting, what the right therapies are, who should get neoadjuvant therapy. And there's, there's a lot of disagreement about what the right primary therapy is, whether it's surgery or radiotherapy. And amongst the radiotherapies, there's a variety of choices also. And when we were at the agency, and the agency is still engaged in this at CMS, we developed a process called coverage under evidence development. And the, the basic notion was we should be paying for procedures and drugs, when we think they work and they have promise, but we should as often as possible try and develop better evidence about in whom they work and in how well so that we can make better decisions. It is an embarrassment that we have been treating prostate cancer in this manner, millions of men at this point, in a manner that has generated very little insight into what the optimal approach is. The intent is, you know, obviously to provide health benefits to our patients, and we could be more globally engaged, I think, in evidence development. And that's why we developed that policy that Medicare would have a direct way of supporting that kind of research, whether it's through registries, observational trials, or randomized trials. There is no trial that I know of right now comparing the different therapies with the key endpoints, like uh, overall survival or even disease-free survival ongoing. I'm not a prostate cancer clinical trials. There may be small trials I don't know of. But, you know, those are the questions that need to be answered. And the issue at the Medicare level is to what extent do you continue to pay for all services based essentially on the whim or instincts of mm -hmm. physicians mm -hmm. rather than based on a robust evidence base. And remember that the prostate cancer example is another interesting one because we have very limited data that the PSA test itself leads to the correct chain of events that reduces prostate cancer. Let me pin you down on one thing, if I can. In the article... You said that only very experienced surgeons actually achieve the low complication rates that all patients deserve. In the study in the Journal of the National Cancer Institute showed that experienced surgeons who have done 250 or more prostate surgeries are also very good at achieving cancer control, almost twice as good as surgeons who have performed relatively few operations. I'm on the credentials committee at my hospital. Should I go in and say, we're going to restrict 
the privileges of surgeons who have not done X number of prostate surgeries because they just don't do a good job? I don't know if the credentials committee is exactly the right solution, and I'll throw in the fact that volumes are pretty poor surrogate for quality. The first answer is that someone should take action to ensure that patients, when they come to, into the hands of a surgeon, get to the surgeon who can provide them the best outcomes. To your other point, it obviously requires then that we develop a way of getting surgeons who are going to do these procedures experience. Well, I'd like to tell you how exciting it's been to talk with you. The time has just flown by, and thank you so much for being my guest. We've been discussing why we'll never cure cancer. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your comments and questions. Please visit us at ReachMD.com and explore our on-demand and podcast features. Thanks for listening. I wish you good day and good health. Listen all month as ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals, as we feature a special series, Focus on Cancer.